In today's episode, we open our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 9, verses 1 through 31. Saul, that fierce persecutor of Christians, embarks on a journey that will forever alter the course of his life and of the Christian faith. En route to Damascus, a divine encounter with Jesus leaves him blinded and then guided to the city by his companions. Ananias steps forward to restore Saul's sight and spirit, baptizing him in the name of the Lord. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Monday, July 31st, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word thrives thanks to the unwavering support of listeners like you, whose prayers and contributions uphold KFU's radio ministry. I'm also grateful to God for the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, our generous sponsor. LHF diligently translates, publishes, and distributes Christ-faithful, Bible-centered materials around the world, and they provide these invaluable resources for free to pastors and missionaries and those who need them. Discover more about LHF's transformative work and how you can participate in their mission. Visit lhfmissions.org. Explore the world of LHF at lhfmissions.org. Well, join me this morning in welcoming back to the show my guest, the Reverend Dan Eddy. He is pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Beloit, Wisconsin. Good morning, Pastor Annie and Andy. Eddie, and welcome back to the program. Morning, Reverend Boo. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great, doing great. Um, just nice to have you on the show. Excited to have you Good back. Good to be this back. A, yeah, this is a great text for us to talk about today. Uh, we have, well, St. Paul coming to faith. What a, what a great moment in the church's history. Absolutely, and showing that anybody can be converted by the Word of God to faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, absolutely. So I think that's something that was probably the main message that people would have got had they known about Saul from his reputation and something I believe that Saul or later renamed St. Paul. I think that's something Paul struggled with his whole ministry. So I'm looking forward to getting into that stuff today. Uh, but before we begin, though, I'd like to invite you to start our time together in prayer. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we live in a world of change but we know your love for us never changes. Through word and sacrament, you change and strengthen our hearts from unbelief to faith in you, along with a strengthened trust. This morning, lovingly challenge our hearts to better accept the things we can't change and to know the things you want us to change and the discernment to know the difference. So we may be stronger, more loving, humble servants, reaching out to all with your good news. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Well, last time we were, well, on this program, we were talking about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch whom he baptized, and that's pretty much where we got. But do you want to catch folks up, tell them where we've been before we dive into chapter 9 this morning? Well, yes, I think you, you, if you look at the end of Acts chapter 7, this is where we're first introduced to Saul and what he is uh, involved with, and he is, uh, um, he is leading the church and that sort of thing. He's, he is defying the church, and, 
and this when he has Stephen uh, here and he's stoning Stephen, he recognizes that uh, um, that that he's got a lot of work to do if he's going to impress the uh, oppress the church here. And so he the more he pushes the metal to the pedal to the metal, the more uh, the church becomes oppressed uh, and the more his this conversion is it's setting it up for the conversion on the road. Well, and that's pretty much where we arrive today. Um, I'm going to read just the first, oh, I don't know, nine verses of chapter nine. It's sort of a nice little paragraph chunk here. Uh, this will be from the English Standard Version. Here we go. But Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. And so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. All right, pausing right there. So tell us a little bit about who Saul is. Tell us about, like, it says he's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And I think we know of him more as St. Paul than as the persecutor Saul. So what is it the Bible has told us already about Saul that we know? Well, first of all, the this event is happening three to four years, <clears throat> excuse me, after uh, Jesus ascended into heaven. So the church is relatively new here, and the church is growing. It's being called the way, uh, you know, John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And notice that the early Christians, especially the apostles, were never charged with stealing Jesus' body. They were charged with, don't tell us that he rose from the dead. So this was just making them very angry and was behind a lot of the persecution because people are leaving the Jewish faith and they're receiving Christ by faith in him. So uh, the more this is happening, the more that uh, he got permission from the high priest and the Sanhedrin who got authority from the Romans to not only jail Christians, but also to imprison them. This included, by the way, women as well. So you can just see that as the gospel is spreading out from Judea and Samaria, and you know, as we head to the ends of the earth, uh, uh, this is becoming a big deal. Damascus was kind of like the international hub uh, for the East and West. And it's very interesting because my guess, and it's just my speculation, that Paul or Saul, excuse me, had to go to Damascus because he thought, man, if we can put him down there, we're going to prevent this from spreading throughout all of the known world. So you can just kind of see this as a climatic event uh, going on here. Saul's headed to Damascus, which is in modern-day Syria, for what it's worth, northeast of Jerusalem. 
Yeah, that key commercial center right there between Egypt and Mesopotamia is going to be a, an area where lots of well new people and new ideas are going to be passing through and traded. So it it makes sense. And uh, I, I'm interested, and I think people usually are. We've called ourselves Christians forever. Uh, well, at least from the point that they were first called Christians here later in Acts. But here it's called the way. Um, it's interesting that that didn't stick, uh, but uh, tell us a little bit. Why were Christians known as the way? Because Jesus set himself up as the only way. And so if you didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, then you didn't think he was the way. And you have people out there saying, yep, this is the guy. This is the Messiah. This is the angel of the Lord now taking on flesh. This is the I am with God in the flesh, then you were at stark difference from the conventional Jewish thinking of the day. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I guess it stuck at least for a little while. So he's looking well, for just sort of, sort of blanket permission to be able to arrest people. So Paul is working on the, I suppose, the authority of the priests, the, the religious leaders there at, uh, uh, I guess, in Jerusalem, right? Because he's asked for letters to yes. Take to Damascus. Yes. So this brings up a big question. Oh, go ahead. Well, this brings up a big question. Did he walk from Jerusalem to Damascus? Because that would have taken six days. Or is he on a horse with his, because there's such urgency, he's on a faster vehicle to get there. Because um, I, I have commentators that said when he was, he was knocked down from his horse. And I'm like, I can't find anywhere where he was on a horse. But if the assumption is he needed to get Damascus because the way is spreading so quickly that maybe perhaps he was on a horse. I don't, I don't know if you ran that in into your studies of this text. Well, actually, I didn't run into him being on a horse that much. Um, it, I mean, it does make sense, though. There were more modes of transportation than just walking down the road. Uh, he could have certainly been that way. Um, I think it's interesting, too, though, that we point out to folks that at this time, he's not headed to secret places where men and women of the way are meeting. He's headed to, well, to synagogues, right? The Christians yeah, that at this is time correct. were still meeting <clears throat> very regularly at synagogues, and synagogue worship was such that they would have been given an opportunity to speak or could have been speaking alongside other people who were teaching uh, but regardless, that's where he's going. So as you pointed out earlier, Christianity is really kind of just getting off the ground in terms of its its own new thing. It's not even really considered its own new thing just yet. I think one of the key things when you're talking about how do you label followers of Christ, disciples, I think is a very strong word because it harkens back to Matthew 28, where Jesus said, you know, this is how you make disciples baptizing and teaching. And so it's interesting that Luke starts off Acts chapter 9 talking about the disciples of Christ. And I think that's actually, the, in my opinion, the best term. Uh, Christians were, was first, I think, used in Antioch. Um, the way is nice, okay, but these are more than followers of Jesus. These are more than converts. Jesus isn't just there to convert a heart. Jesus is there to make a disciple. So I, I personally think that's, if you want to put a title on the followers of Jesus, that that's a powerful one. Do you think that the Reformation emphasis um, coming out of an era where people were 
their consciences and hearts were being burdened, having to do all of these certain works in order to earn salvation before God. And, and the Reformation comes along and rightly renews the gospel that we receive, of course, faith as a gift, and, and we are saved because of Jesus' sake. Do you think, though, in the last 500 years, this concept of discipleship maybe in some ways has fallen by the wayside? This idea that, sure. well, yes, you're saved by faith, but there's still stuff for you to do, right? There's still a discipline to learn. Certainly in this age, in my lifetime, uh, which would be 58 years, absolutely. Discipleship has fallen by the wayside. I mean, how many people, as a percentage of your attending population, attend Bible study? And if you took a survey, an honest survey of how many of our members do they daily engage in the word through daily devotions and prayer and meditation? Uh, and and I, as the way I described it a week ago in a sermon, uh, we our, our faith is fed. Uh, and there are a lot of, you know, manna from heaven and Jesus feeding the 5,000. These are events where it shows how Jesus feeds our faith. But do we starve ourselves between Sunday to Sunday? Or are we daily engaged with it? If we're daily engaged with it, then we are acting more like the disciples that Jesus uh, spoke about and called uh, beginning in Matthew 28. So here we have Saul, who is being called to be a disciple for Jesus. Um, Jesus speaks to him, which is what's fascinating. Um, this light shone from heaven. He's blinded once he gets back up, we notice. And it is Jesus who says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he answers, who are you, Lord? Um, and then he says, well, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Uh, but then rise and I'll tell you what to do later. That's, of course, a paraphrase. But uh, Jesus himself comes and speaks with Paul. And, and we often talk about Paul that because of this encounter, he meets the early church's qualifications, definition, so to speak, of being an apostle. Paul struggled with this, though, because as someone who was not dis being a disciple of Jesus while Jesus was on the earth, um, I think he had to defend his apostleship many times over because, as we see when he writes his letters, he's frequently talking about how, you know, I, I'm called by God, not by man. Um, and he has some, you know, critical things to say about so-called super apostles. Uh, but this is just really the beginning of Paul's, I guess, no other word to say it, but his conversion. As Saul is being converted to what we typically now say, Paul, he's being called by Jesus. Um, let's look at how the rest of the story goes, and then we'll keep talking. Starting. Well, at let me, 10. let me, mm -hmm. well, let me pick up from there. Notice Jesus says, doesn't say, "Why are you persecuting them? Why are you persecuting my followers?" He's saying, "Why are you persecuting me?" He takes the suffering of his disciples and puts it on himself. There, that the intimate relationship that Jesus has with his followers, he makes very apparent to Paul right up front. And when Paul says, who are you, Lord? He's not using Lord in, I think you're Yahweh. He's like, I don't know who you are. Okay. And that's where Jesus said, you know, I am. And he uses it with the same emphatic nature that you see throughout the Gospel of John. You know, ego, amen. Okay. And it harkens back to Exodus chapter three, 
which Saul would have knew, known very, very well. And Jesus is even emphatic about, um, you know, that the he's, he's saying, I myself am Jesus, whom you yourself are persecuting. And, and so Jesus is making it very clear using uh, language and, and using the event to make it very clear to Paul who he is. And then in verse six, he sets up this, this sharp contrast, Allah in the Greek, where he says, I myself am Jesus, whom you yourself are persecuting. But despite that, I want you, I mean, I, yeah, but I could kill you, but I want you to rise and enter the city and you'll be told uh, what you are to do. I think that's very um, important that what he is saying, his first words to Paul from, from heaven are, are very clear as to who he is and what needs to be done. When he says, I am Jesus, you see that um, ego emi as a connection to I am to you. The reason why I ask this is because, I, I don't know, one of the things that I've noticed as I continue to study the scriptures is that Jesus is unable to actually use just the phrase I am, which is very common, without it always being some sort of allusion to Moses' encounter with Yahweh in the burning bush. I don't know if that's always the case. I just wonder if this is one of those cases where Jesus is saying, well, I am Jesus, and I am is necessary for the sentence, I am Jesus. What do you think? Well, okay, so Saul here, he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knows his, what we call the Old Testament, like the back of his hand. Uh, and he and so I'm thinking he wants to make it very clear. Now, I could be wrong. I'm, this is my hypothesis that he wants to make it clear, first of all, when you're, when you're putting men and women in prison and then they're executing them, you're executing me. Uh, you're persecuting me. So I want to make it very clear who I am to you. So I would think those words would hearken back to Exodus chapter 3. Does it make it absolutely clear in the text? No. But I think in this particular instance, uh, I, would, I think there's a strong argument that he's tying it back to Exodus 3. Interesting. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with the first uh, part of your premise, that is that he's identifying the suffering of his disciples as being an attack against him, he himself. Yeah, that we agree on. I disagree with the I am Jesus part, but that's just one of my little hang-ups because I just hear it so often. And I always think, well, did Jesus ever say I am something without it being the great I am? And I, I think he did because it's just common language. But um, but definitely. An well, it's interesting. Every time in John, when he says, I am the good shepherd, I am the way, the truth and the life. I am the light of the world. It uses this emphatic structure. There are other times when he does use the word I am in the Gospels where it doesn't have that ego amen, but just amen to it. So I agree with you just because he uses those two uh, words together doesn't always mean that he's hearkening back to Exodus 3. I will agree to, to that. And I would also agree with your premise if I hadn't gone back to the Greek and saw the ego amen. If it was just amen, I, I would would agree with you um, that's that's there. And, and it doesn't change the meaning of the text. It's just a more of, is, is this a sharp uh, understanding or is it just a clear understanding of the text? No, I agree. Uh, for what it's worth, too, do you think that Jesus was speaking Greek to uh, the Jew, Paul, Saul? Well, now that's a really good question. Uh, well, he was a Hellenistic Jew, 
Okay, so Paul did know the Greek language quite well. You know this from your exegetical classes, where he knew the language so well that when you translated some of his, what would be three or four sentences in English is one sentence in Greek. So he definitely knew the language uh, quite well. I, I don't know. That's a that's a really good way. Or would he speak to him in the language of the temple? You know, that. I, right. I never even thought about that. In any event, regardless of what language he was speaking, Paul clearly knew that this was no fraud. This was the real deal. This was the real savior. Oh, certainly. And what happens next uh, affirms that even more. And I definitely want to get into those verses now. So starting with verse 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. And he regained his sight, and he rose, and he was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. We're going to end right there, pause, right there in the, I guess, middle of verse 19. Um, so, he appears, the Lord that is, to a disciple named Ananias, who also says, here I am, Lord. He calls him Lord, too. Perhaps he recognizes the voice of Jesus, and the Lord tells him all of the things that we just heard. Uh Interesting way that the Lord is going about bringing Paul or Saul at this point to the faith. I mean, uh, he's involving Ananias and so many other people in this. We just see how God is using people as instruments, and he has planned for Saul also to be an instrument of his, but not one that comes uh, without danger. Absolutely. And also note here that how Jesus ties the hurt and the pain that Saul has caused the church and says, don't worry, this guy is going to suffer on behalf of me. Uh, and think about that. It makes sense that Saul had to be persecuted because it in many ways showed the genuineness of his witness to be an apostle, to be a disciple. And the Greek word for instrument means like a pot or vessel. And that harkens to 2 Corinthians 4, uh, treasures and jars of clay, although different Greek words are used there. But the point is, is that God can take anybody in any situation and let his light shine through that individual to show the authenticity uh, of the gospel so that it is a believable message. And think about it. Sometimes our Christian faith comes across the strongest when we're facing our own struggles in life. 
So I think it's interesting how the Lord persuaded Ananias to say here, look, this guy's the real deal. Please do what I'm asking you to do, and you will see how my glory will shine through this guy, even though right now you know him as public enemy number one. Yeah, I mean, you would have to have assurance, I think, from God himself before you would want to encounter Saul, especially as a believer in the way during this time. Um, but but the Lord says, and we'll repeat it, he says, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul suffers quite a bit for Jesus' name, and in many ways in an ironic fashion, because these are the same punishments that he levied against those who believed before he came to faith. Um why do you think that suffering was necessary? I actually have some ideas of my own, but but he says he must suffer for the sake of my name. That's a curious sentence. Is Jesus punishing Paul? Could be. Uh, I think more importantly, like I said before, this is to show his authenticity as an apostle. Um, how does Peter put it? Uh, the drossing, uh, drossing, no, uh, yeah, drossing. To, to get out the impurities, uh, to suffer, to show the genuineness of the gospel. And Paul goes into quite detail in 2 Corinthians. You were mentioning before how Paul had to constantly establish his apostleship. Well, much of 2 Corinthians, it could be argued, he makes quite a resume for why he sh the credibility of him as a preacher, as an evangelist, as a disciple, and even as an apostle. I believe it was at 1 Corinthians 15, he, he says, although one uh, who's come along lately or one not naturally born as an apostle. But all of this is made credible through his suffering. And, and I personally think that that is where, well, think of Romans chapter 5. We rejoice in our sufferings because what does suffering do? Produces perseverance, that perseverance leads to character. That character shows the hope that does not disappoint us because God has poured his love into our heart so that we can show that love to others. When we suffer for righteousness' sake, we certainly give thanks, and we do so in joy, connecting ourselves to the suffering of Christ. Uh, when we come back from the break, though, I, I want to ask you, there are folks out there who think that unless you are actively suffering, then you're not trying hard enough to be a Christian. You're not discipling yourself enough, or you're not getting out in the world enough. But that's going to have to wait till after our break. Folks, don't go anywhere. When we come back, Pastor Andy and I will keep on going through Chapter 9. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, 
go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash one three sixteen. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo, and with me today is the Reverend Dan Eddy, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Beloit, Wisconsin. Folks, Thy Strong Word is available to all our listeners in the St. Louis area on AM 850, but if you're not in St. Louis, how how can you listen? Well, if you're listening already outside of St. Louis, you know, but there are people whom you know that may not know themselves how to tune into the show. So tell them that they can use their favorite podcasting platforms to subscribe to the show. They can take advantage of the KFUO radio app on their phones, or they can be in the word whenever they want, listening live or catching up on demand at kfuo.org forward slash thy strong word. And if you want to chat or you have some thoughts of your own or you have any questions, I'm all ears. You can reach me by dropping an email to pastorboo at gmail.com or by connecting with me on Facebook. All right, Pastor Eddie, so one of the things that sparked to my mind right before the break is you talked about the suffering that accompanied the message which gave validity to the message of Paul and how uh, all Christians, when we suffer for righteousness' sake, uh, we should count that as a joy, as the Scriptures say. But there are many out there who, I guess there's two sides of the spectrum. There are those who think that the more faithful you are, the more blessed and rich, health and wealthy you'll be, and uh, things will just go so great for you. And if they're not, then you're not faithful enough. And then there are those who take spiritual suffering and they elevate it to uh, the equivalent of spiritual maturity, saying that if you're not constantly actively suffering for the gospel, then you're simply not trying hard enough. Um, how would we counter those two, I believe, wrong ideas? Oh, brother, are you there? Do I have you? Well, not hearing anything from the guest, I'm going to assume that there's some sort of technical problem. Um, well, I'll go ahead and talk about it anyway. Uh, we have this, uh, we have this concept, I think, out there where if you are not out there being persecuted for righteousness sake, then somehow you're just not doing it enough. And they'll point to things like our guest said, like the guest talked about St. Paul with, you know, the suffering accompanies the message. I think we have to be very careful about making suffering a prerequisite of being a certain kind of Christian. That would make it really no different than requiring certain spiritual gifts in order for a Christian to be you know, more mature than the other. At the same time, I do think people are out there resting on their laurels and they are not exposing themselves to the people and places that might bring persecution, either out of fear or desire for comfort. But regardless, God calls us to, well, make ourselves available to the world so that we can proclaim the message of Christ. Um, Brother, do I have you back on? We do, and I'm sorry about that. I don't know what happened to the digital line. No worries. But anyway, I was just talking about, you know, you've probably run into some people who think that, you know, persecution is a sign of spiritual maturity. You know, I never quite understood that because there's no Bible passage to back that up. All Christians suffer in different ways. 
yes, our brothers in Nigeria right now are being slaughtered. That is the way that they're suffering. Americans suffer. You and I, when we minister to people, they're suffering through cancer, family breakups, divorce, financial ruin, alcoholism. The Lord is is not going to allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. But 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that he will show us a way out so we can bear up under it. So he knew the limitations of what, for example, Job can handle. That's why he said to Satan, you can do it with the first round. You can do anything but touch his body. You know, and in the second round, you can do anything but take his life. Because he knew that Job was going to handle that particular challenge. So everybody's uh, so-called breaking point, the Lord's going to know what that is. And so I think for people to say, well, if you don't suffer in this specific way is, to me, quite legalistic or pietistic in nature. Yeah, I mean, suffering is going to be a part of the Christian journey. The the idea that you have to actively seek out suffering or hardship to measure your faithfulness or as a test of one's faithfulness, I think is definitely an an unchristian concept. Instead, and frankly, if you're just chomping for persecution— if you if you focus on doing the will of God, if you focus on discipling yourself under Christ, and you go out and you live those things and put them into action, you will be persecuted. But as our as our esteemed guest said, persecution's different, and and I think that difference is also important for us to remember, uh, Pastor, because you you mentioned like say Christians in Nigeria or Christians in. Uh, heavily Muslim-occupied territories, or Christians in China under communistic conditions. And and we think of some of the things that we are facing, the detrimental things we're facing as Christians in America. And it can be really easy to set those two things up, put them on a scale and go, well, we shouldn't worry about whatever persecution we face, because it's not real persecution until you're shedding your blood or something. So I think you brought up another interesting point, and that is that persecution looks different based on the person, based on the concept. Um, we shouldn't be seeking it out. Now the question is, should we resist it, right? We just went through a period in our country's history in the past few years where Christians were fairly divided on how to respond to actions taken that they believed were persecutory. Do you think that Christians should resist persecution? We're allowed under our Constitution uh, with uh, freedom of religion to resist because that is something lawfully given to us by God, okay? Now, it is worth noting that when Christians were persecuted, they were allowed to lead the area of persecution. They headed to other areas. There's nothing wrong with that either. I think there's a problem if somebody says, well, I'm here, come and get me, take my life. Eh, something's not, because you, you don't find that in Scripture, you find, for example, with, with Paul, that when he was persecuted in one area, he went to the other area. Um, then he go uh, Thessalonica, then he head down to Athens, and then, and then that's when he was at the uh, Mars Hill, uh, the, the religious discussion that was there. So even Paul learned how to escape persecution until he couldn't escape it anymore. Well, Paul was laying out his own level of persecution, but he will now experience it through the course of his ministry. 
We still haven't gotten to the part where Ananias actually met with him, and he does, and he lays his hands on him, and he affirms that he also received a vision, so he confirms who he is, and then immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and then he was baptized, and then taking food he was strengthened. So Ananias obeys the command of the Lord, and God uses Ananias to continue the journey with Paul, or I guess start him off on the journey. I bring this up because while Jesus is the instigator of Paul's conversion, it really is left up to the other people, the other disciples, to, well, disciple Paul, to bring him up, to raise him up in the faith, to catechize him. Jesus so far as I know, doesn't like meet with him regularly. Uh, he he sends him. He sends Paul to the church. Well, Paul does say that he does have other supernatural encounters with Jesus. But yes, you're right. He went and learned from the other apostles what was going on. By the way, this even before we get to this point, there's a lot of talk of when was Paul? Or excuse me, when was Saul converted? Was he converted right away? When he got knocked to the ground, was he converted after the miracle or his sight was restored? And I don't know, but we do know one thing. We knew for sure he was converted after he was baptized. Right. Yeah, it, it, that's another thing that I guess we like to do as a result of the luxury of time we have to sit around and think about it. We like to try to parse the scriptures to get into debates over things that really are irrelevant in the grand context of what's going on. As you said, he was baptized, he was converted, and of course his life and his actions show that too. Anything else before I move on to uh, Saul going to the synagogues? Well, here it's interesting. Ananias considered him a brother in the faith right away. Look at 17. Brother is not thrown around frivolously. If you use the word brother, you're saying you're a fellow believer in Christ. And I think that's very interesting. Right from the bat, Ananias, because of the words of Jesus and the power that baptism offers, considered him a fellow believer right off the bat. I think that is interesting. I don't know that I really picked up on that before. But yeah, by welcoming Saul as a brother, he's showing his obedience to Jesus' call. Because think about how hard it must have been for Ananias to call Saul, the persecutor of the church, a brother. And yet, he does. Amen. And All you right, know what? Let's, go ahead. This is, this is a challenge for us because we think about the people in our world, people we don't particularly like, and when we find out they're believers in Jesus Christ, do are we accepting immediately of them like Ananias was? Just something to think about. It really is. Well, he was uh, given some food, he was strengthened, and then it continues. This is the second half of verse 19. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed. Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. 
All right, pausing there. Paul was proving that Jesus was the Christ, undoubtedly, brother, from the from the scriptures, right? He's he's confounding the Jews, those in these synagogues who certainly knew scriptures, and he was taking those same scriptures and showing them where they had gone astray. What I think is great about this is that they, the the Jews, and Paul or Saul at this point still, they have the same scriptures. But now suddenly they're reading those same scriptures and one has come to faith in Christ. I think to me, this is one of those small little tidbits of evidence that show us that the primary way by, th- by which people become believers, of course, is through, through baptism and through the proclamation of the word. When it comes to just reading and understanding the scripture, I believe the Bible is for believers. I, I think that you can't fully apprehend the teachings of scripture unless you believe. And we see now Paul, as a believer, given the free gift of faith from Christ, now is going back to the Scriptures and going around and proving how Jesus is indeed the Messiah who was to come. I just think that's amazing detail. It is the testimony of the power of the Holy Spirit. What do we believe as Lutherans? The Holy Spirit not only writes Scripture through men, of course, but also the Holy Spirit is there to help us interpret Scripture. And yes, it is a testimony of our faith. Uh, When believers look at the same Scriptures that unbelievers look at, it's amazing how you come up with two different interpretations. Years ago when I worked in radio, there was a talk show host on in the afternoon of the news talk station that I worked for, and he was an avowed atheist. And when he would pull open the Bible and start reading it, It was, on one hand, hilarious, because it was clear he wasn't a believer in Jesus Christ, and on the other hand, it was quite sad, because he was was actually a testimony of why you need the Holy Spirit to interpret the Word of God. He'd come up with some crazy interpretations, because he didn't understand what he was reading. Yes, some of the backflips that atheists do and those who want to be critical of the Scriptures do to make the Bible fit into their preconceived notions is pretty rough. Now, don't get me wrong, we Christians err on that side too. Sometimes we do some pretty wild things to try to make stuff fit, but the the, the clear teachings of Scripture really, I think, can only be fully apprehended by those uh, in faith. Not that God can't use your passing out of Bibles to the people and someone might read it and come to faith through it. I'm not saying, I mean, I'm not going to tell God what he can and can't do. But at the same time, I will say that it's probably not the primary means by which you should be evangelizing, just handing out Bibles. It's about building up relationships, and that's what we see here. You know, Jesus sends him to Ananias. Ananias then builds a relationship with him, brings him into the faith, baptizes him. I assume there's catechesis going on too, but now Paul, with this newfound faith, is able to look at his treasury of knowledge that he has from the scriptures, and now looking at it through the lens of Christ, it's all beginning to make sense. And he's running around, and he's he's teaching these things in the synagogues, which is amazing, but they're not going to let him keep that up for very long, will they? No. All I can say is faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Paul wrote that down through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the church at Rome, and how interestingly, he himself is a testimony of that very scripture. Amen. Verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him 
in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, uh, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So we have this situation where they're looking to kill him. He sneaks away, and uh, really Barnabas is an interesting character. We're introduced to Barnabas, uh, not for the first time, but again, and Barnabas kind of takes Paul under his wing, sort of vouches for him. Barnabas is, is in some ways his benefactor amongst the Christians. Is that how you would describe it? Absolutely. He was the one that's, you know, we as believers need affirmation when the most incredible things occur. Think about it. Mary needed affirmation to know that she was pregnant with the Christ child through not being with a man, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth provided that affirmation, okay? Well, here, Barnabas is providing affirmation to the apostles. This guy is the real deal. And and because they're probably thinking, this is too good to be true. And he's telling them, no, this is good, and this is true. Yeah, I mean, it is hard to believe. I mean, just imagine if the, the the worst guy you can think of, the one who's always out there trying to hurt you and kill you and perhaps has even hurt or, or ordered the, the lives to be taken from people you love. And then suddenly he says, well, I'm a Christian too. Let me into your, to your inner circles. Let me into your enclaves. I want to know where you meet. I, I think it's reasonable for the disciples to be suspicious. They had not all received the same vision that Ananias did. So it's going to take a little more, I think, to convince them. But what we see here, and really throughout Paul's ministry, is we, we, we see Christians being able to struggle with division, even be able to disagree with one another from time to time, and yet they're still bound together as brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ. Well, we may have or will do that when, you know, people will come to our church and say, well, I can't believe that that person is a believer. I I, I remember one time there was a, a guy, this was like 25 years ago, who was somebody that nobody believed would ever be a Christian. Uh, he was highly skeptical. Uh, we actually invited him to our singles group. And anytime he came, he was highly skeptical of anything that we were studying in Scripture. And he would throw all these roadblocks in the way. And I think people just said, I don't think this guy would ever be a believer. Well, I'd lost contact with him. And a couple years later, I re he reconnected with me and um, talked about how much life had changed for him, and now that he was a believer. And I had to admit, at first, I'm like, yeah, right. But then when I saw what he wrote in an email to me, I'm like, wow. I mean, I don't know what happened, but the Lord really converted this heart. And I think we have to be open for that in our own lives, because we all know Saul's in our lives. Maybe they're not, you know, out killing Christians, 
but they are nemesises to our families, to our churches, to our faith. And, and they may be in the media, they may be next door to us, they may be in our own families. And we need to always be open to the possibility that they may have their road to Damascus moment. It may not involve supernatural means, but it will involve the power of God's Word to convert even the hardest of heart. And that ultimately is this beautiful message that we see from Saul's conversion and, and how he went on too, right? How, how Saul went on to pen most of the New Testament. Um, it's amazing how God can work, especially if we're not running around trying to limit the ways in which he can work. And uh, you know he's limited himself to bringing faith by the Word, but then he uses us as instruments to go out and proclaim that Word in a variety of different ways. And you just never know, and you don't see it as directly as you do in the conversion of Saul sometimes, um, but God is working through those interactions that we have with people, through the proclamations of Jesus, through the times that we, we share our faith with others. That word's not going to return to him empty. Uh, Saul is but one example of that. I think one of the challenges we have as pastors is, especially when you're talking to a parent or grandparent and they're concerned about the salvation of a child or grandchild, I have to tell them, do not put the weight of your child or grandchild's conversion on you. It is the Holy Spirit that does the converting, because I think I'll also hear people say, well, I can't force someone into the faith. You're right. You can't. You're a tool and instrument, just like Paul's a tool and instrument. Uh, you are a tool and instrument. You don't think that God is using other people and other means to work on your child or grandchild? Don't put that burden on yourself. Don't ignore it. Don't say, well, okay, Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. But on the other hand, don't put that all on your shoulders. When you pray, pray for what's my role, but then also pray for the roles of other people in either bringing people to faith or nurturing that faith. Hey, even when Paul was converted, look at all the people that played a role in nurturing that faith so that he could be the apostle that he was kind of shy at saying he was, but certainly was. So Paul is accepted by the other brothers, and then it says in verse 31, as we come toward the end of our program, it says, The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit had multiplied. You know, despite the persecution, the church is growing in both number and maturity. Um, the peace that's talked about here, I mean, I don't think that there is a lack of persecution. To me, that peace is referring to the fact that the churches contend in the face of persecution. They're, they're focusing on their unity and they're growing in faith and receiving persecution when it comes with the spirit that God has given them to receive it. And of course, not seeking it out if they don't have, if they have a choice. Um, but it's just, it's just great to see here that even in the midst of all the persecution that we've been talking about this whole morning, the scriptures tell us that the church uh, was at, was at peace and was being built up. Um, do you feel like the church is at peace today? Depends on where you're at. Um, I think Christians are at peace. Many Christians, even if our church structures may be seem like they're in chaos or in conflict, 
I think the real sign of someone with a strong faith is when everything around them seems to be falling apart, but they're not because they're living that peace. Joy comes from within. You know, peace and joy are very related to each other. Happiness is based on what's happening around the outside. Joy comes within because you believe the hope of Christ. You hope. What is hope? Hope is believing something you haven't yet received, but living as though you've already received it. Is that not what we as Christians are called to live every day? You know, to quote Paul from Romans 8, uh, he says that our sufferings, our present sufferings, do not compare to the glory that will be and is being revealed in us. And so I think it's very interesting that the uh, cities of Samaria and Judea are used because Luke is reminding us that the church is living the promise when Jesus said, but you will receive power from the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They are now living what Jesus said would happen. And may we also uh, live the commands and ways in which God has called us to be, uh, disciples under him. We have the same Holy Spirit that was accompanying Paul, and we have the same faith that was placed in the heart of Paul. And so I think that we today, we can look at the church and we can see how, you know, not everything feels at peace, but we can be at peace. Like you said, it's not necessarily happiness, but it's at peace and joy knowing that our Lord still reigns. I think that's an important thing for us to remember as our Senate meets in convention. Uh, the the several conventions that I've been to, I just remember in the moment, some of the things felt like they were the most important things in the world. And and whether or not they have a long-term impact on the church is debatable. The main thing is that we continue to be in the Word. We continue to be proclaiming that Word. Brother, I'm so happy that you were here on the show this morning to proclaim the Word uh, with me. Um, that's the end of our program, though. I'd like to thank the Reverend Dan Eddy, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Beloit, Wisconsin. Thanks, Pastor Eddie, for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Look forward to hearing and being on the show soon. Excellent. Good. Uh, and you, yeah, you should be able to hear that on demand in just a few hours when it gets posted. But folks, for now, I want you to prepare your hearts to get ready to witness the astonishing healing that's going to happen in the ancient city of Lydda. That's where the followers of the way are experiencing the incredible power of Jesus Christ. Meanwhile, in the coastal town of Joppa, a devoted centurion named Cornelius is receiving a divine vision, telling him to send for Peter. Just the church is continuing to grow in its infancy here as we study the book of Acts, but that'll be tomorrow. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.